we are in the, the midst of a series called Curious Questions, questions that we as Christians get asked. And we've looked at a bunch. We're up to number six. And today's question is, how can you trust the Bible? How do you know that it is reliable or trustworthy as we have it? And these are fairly common questions we get as Christians. Uh, They're also really, really important questions we get as Christians. Because if we cannot trust the Bible, that doesn't leave us a whole lot to stand on. Uh, It doesn't. Uh, If the Bible was not around, if it was not trustworthy, that would not change the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead. It would not change the fact that he's ascended to heaven and sent the Spirit now to fill his people. But it would be very hard to know what we're meant to do. It really, really would. So it's a really, really important question for us as his people. And I wonder how you would answer it yourself if someone popped you that question. How is it that you can trust the Bible? How do you know the Bible is reliable? Uh, In fact, I would wonder how many of you know how we got the Bible. Do you know that? It's quite a story. I'm going to touch on parts of it today. Uh, And you know what? So often, this type of question that we get, how can you trust the Bible? It comes from people who have heard various things. Maybe they've been reading the internet. A bit of that does go on. Can't blame them for that. Uh, But it comes from a range of different, uh, different people. And I think at one end of the spectrum, we've got people who've, again, read things on the internet, um, or they've watched something like the movie like The Da Vinci Code. Have you seen it? Yeah, I've seen it as well. Um, you know, it's fun, but don't take it too seriously. But, but people, people watch that. They read the book, and a lot of them did. There's some 80 million copies of that book sold. Uh, and it brings into question the Bible, the reliability and trustworthiness of the Bible. So there's a lot of people out there with those questions. Down the other end of the spectrum from them are people who have maybe come across biblical skeptics. Have you heard of someone called Bart Ehrman? And uh, I'm not seeing too many nods. That's fine. Bart Ehrman is a biblical scholar. He is not a Christian. You can look him up later today if you really, really want to. Uh, and he is skeptical of the reliability and trustworthiness of the Bible. I think it's in 2005 uh, he wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus where he's suggesting that the Bible, the New Testament, actually, does not reliably or accurately quote Jesus. And people have come across these. And then they come across you as a Christian. And they have questions for you. How is it that you can trust the Bible? How do you know that it's trustworthy or reliable? And I want to suggest that there are two main things going on here. There's really a question about that the, the reliability or, or the, the authentic meaning of the, the Bible has been lost in its transition, uh, transmission sorry, as it's been passed down over the years. We can't be sure of its original meaning. Uh, secondly, there's usually, it's usually suggested or presumed that what we have in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, that's what I'm talking about today, particularly in this section, Uh, was decided on a long time after it was originally written. And so this brings into question its reliability and trustworthiness. Now, I want to suggest that both of these can be answered. They can be answered confidently and clearly. And indeed, that the Bible is absolutely reliable and trustworthy. If you know me at all, you know I really, really like the Bible because I take it as God's word to us. 
But to do this, to answer this, we have to know some history. And I don't know what your family history likes, but if you're a Christian, you have a family history that involves the history of the Bible and how we got it. And now, fair warning, it's messy. If you imagine we got the Bible by it just descending from heaven somehow, I'll pop that bubble right now. We did it. That's not how we got it. No, it's far, far messier than that. But you know what? In some ways, it's far, far better as well. Let's get into it. So, first up, the reliability of the Bible. Has it been lost in transition? Transmission. I'm going to get that word wrong. It's not transition. Transmission. Okay? And usually there is some suggestion that, yeah, we can't trust it because uh, its meaning has been lost as it's been transmitted across the years, across the centuries, a bit like the game of Chinese whispers. I don't know if we're allowed to say that name. Or the telephone game. You know the one where people line up, you get 10 people in a row, you whisper in the first person's ear, you know, a sentence or two, and they pass it on to the person after them and so on, and then gets to the person at the end of the line and they say what they heard, and it's nothing like the person at the start, and it's very funny and and everything. We've all played it, haven't we? Well, that that suggestion, that parallel was made between the Bible, and it's very common but it falls down on multiple fronts. Firstly, and most importantly, uh, the Bible is written. (laughs) Seems sort of obvious, doesn't it? But no, the Bible is written, and this is incredibly important, and I am actually talking about the Old Testament and New Testament here. And that's a significant difference to the telephone game. If we were to play the telephone game with me writing it down on a piece of paper, showing Evan and him writing it on a piece of paper, and so on through the crowd here to the back, it wouldn't be a very exciting game we'd be able to ace that actually really, really quite easy. And this is the wonderful thing about writing something down. If I was to write something on the back of this piece of paper, I could put it down and just leave it here. Well, someone else would probably shift it. But I could put it down someplace safe, leave it there for 50 years. Someone else could pick it up, copy it, and carry on. Of course they can. That's the way writing works, isn't it? And there's also a second difference as well. You know, when we're playing a game, uh, it's a fun thing. It's in the moment. There's no preparation for it. You just, someone whispers in one ear and then you try and whisper it in someone else's ear. But I think that's that's a bad comparison. That's a bad analogy for the transmission of the Bible. Uh, As I said, it was written down. And the people who were writing it down, surprisingly, unsurprisingly, took it very, very seriously. This was an important document for them. They believed it was from God and they took it with that sort of seriousness. But actually many of the people who copied it, I mean, in one sense anyone could copy it, but many of the people who did copy it, like they were professionals. This was the only way you could copy any text at the time. There's no, there's no Xerox, there's no photocopier, is there? And so people would be experienced, they would be practiced at copying documents. Let me give you an example. If we had a gymnast's beam here, and I got on that beam, you'd be nervous for me, wouldn't you? And rightly so, and I'd be even more nervous. And if I tried to do a backwards flip on that beam, uh, you'd probably get your phone out, wouldn't you? (laughs) Yeah, I know you. But uh, it would end in pain for me, and probably cringing for you. But no, you get a gymnast up there, someone who's trained in it. I mean, they make it look easy, don't they? It's not, but they make it look 
easy. And likewise, when it comes to copying, many of the people who copy the Bible, it's not that we know them by name, but this was, this was a job that went on. People were familiar with it. They knew how to do it. That's not to say they didn't make mistakes, but they knew what they were doing. Now, amongst the copies and the parts of the Bible that we have, there are indeed variations. They are. The vast majority of those variations, wouldn't you know it, come down to spelling mistakes or something similar to that. They're sort of obvious. You read them through them, and a lot of the time you'd just read over them, if you could read them in the Greek. You'd just read over them because you understand it anyway. But you can identify them easily enough. But there are some variations, and I want to point out two of the large variations you'll come across in your Bible that you have or have in the pew sitting in front of you. Come to the end of the Gospel of Mark, there is a shorter and longer ending to the Gospel of Mark. And this will be obvious because it's highlighted for you. It's 12 verses, and you wonder, where does this come from? Why is it there? Very good question. You read the shorter ending of Mark, and it ends with a woman at the tomb of Jesus being told by an angel, he is not here, he is risen, and them leaving terrified. End of the Gospel of Mark. Just stops there. It's quite abrupt, but that's the way Mark is written, quite abruptly. And you know what? If that's all you knew, well, okay. But when you know the other Gospels, you know there's actually a bit more to the story. And so the longer ending of Mark, these 12 verses, add that Jesus appeared, risen Jesus, appeared to the disciples, uh, a little bit told them off for a lack of faith, and then commissioned them before ascending to heaven. Exactly what we get in the other Gospels. It doesn't add anything, really, that we don't already know. But you could see why it might be added on the end, because it does give some important information. Jesus hadn't just disappeared. No, he actually appeared to various people, including commissioning the disciples before ascending to heaven. Uh, the second major variation that we have in our Bibles is found in the Gospel of John. Uh, not in the epistles of P, um, Paul or anyone else, in the Gospel of John, and it's in John chapter 8, the start of John chapter 8, and again, funny enough, it's 12 verses, uh, it's what we know as the story of the woman caught in adultery. Do you know the one? Yeah, a woman's going to be stoned, she's been caught in adultery, she's brought to Jesus, and Jesus says, you know, let the one without sin cast the first stone, and everyone wanders away. It's a great story, isn't it? And yet, the oldest copies we have of the Gospel of John don't have that story in it. Now, the vast majority of scholars say that this story rings true, by which they mean, in their best estimation, this is not just a made-up story like someone's, someone's just produced. This is a story they think is original and someone's inserted it there. And you know what? That story, it doesn't actually tell us anything extra about Jesus or about what or about God, or what we are called to do, or how we are saved. It's a great story, but it doesn't actually add anything extra. And this is really, really important for us. Let me give you another example of, uh, we'd call it uh, the variation between manuscripts or textual variation, which is you know, it's a bit wordy really, isn't it? Uh, have you all come across a King James Bible? You all come across those? So originally, it was originally produced in 1611. Uh, what it was translated from, the manuscripts it was translated from, 
are, are, are relatively late. So they're not the earliest ones. They're relatively late ones. Since 1611, we've found earlier manuscripts. Isn't that great? We've found more, and we keep finding more, as it turns out. And yet, to compare the King James Bible, which was translated from these later manuscripts, and to the Bibles around us, which are translated from the earlier manuscripts, there is no significant difference between them. There is not a point of significant Christian doctrine where they are in difference. Do you get the significance of that? Yeah, it's pretty important, eh? So you remember the biblical scholar I mentioned at the start, Bart Ehrman. He's the guy who's a skeptical, wrote a book called Misquoting Jesus in 2005. Well, there's a funny thing about him. In, there's a paperback copy of his book, Misquoting Jesus, and there's an appendix in the book. And if you turn to the appendix, there is this sentence from Bart Ehrman. Essential Christian beliefs are not affected by textual variants in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament. Now, actually, that's a really significant sentence. And it probably shouldn't have been in the appendix, but, you know, I'll, I'll cut him some slack. At least he put it in. Because what he's saying here, and this is from a guy who's made a career, he's written multiple books calling into question the reliability and trustworthiness of the Bible, is he acknowledges that the variations that do exist between the manuscripts that we have, they do not change anything about our essential belief about God, about Jesus, about salvation, about the church. They don't, they don't change anything. And that's pretty important. The skeptic agrees that we can trust the Bibles that we have about our essential beliefs. Well, I think that's pretty important. Hmm. Let me give you another guy. This is um, probably, oh, no, this is not who I was expecting, actually. Wrong slide. Let me show you the oldest part of the New Testament we have. Uh, it's not very big, and you're actually seeing the front and the back of it there. That's why it's mirrored there for it. Uh, this is very creatively called P52. <laughs> I know, it sounds like a Kiwi bridge around the place, doesn't it? Bridge number 37. Yeah. Uh, no, it's called P52 because it's papyrus 52. It's written on papyrus. And it's written on the front and the back. That's why you're seeing both sides. Uh, on the front, it has John 18 verses uh, 31 to 33. And on the back, it has John 18 verses 37 to 38. If you're ever in Manchester in the UK... You can tootle along to the university and see this. It is there on display. Now, I know this is not a lot to go on, but this little piece of papyrus, this little piece of John's Gospel, is dated from about 100 to 152 AD. This is really, really early. And you might think, well, what can you do with these verses? Well, the point is you take these very, very old verses and you compare them to every other manuscript, every other copy of John's Gospel that you have. And if they line up, this very, very original copy adds weight to all these other copies. doesn't matter if those other copies come 100 years later, 200 years later. You're making this point of connection. You're seeing that they line up. And if you start doing this again and again and again with more and more copies, more and more manuscripts, they all line up. This lines with that, with that, and that, and that, and that. Well, that's more and more evidence, isn't it? And this is what they do. And hence, even little fragments like P52 are important, and there's a lot of them. 
Uh, Daniel B. Wallace is probably one of the best academics on the questions of the Bible's transmission and reliability. Um, uh, he's alive and, and working today. The other one I would recommend is probably a guy called Michael Kruger. Um, but uh, Wallace gives us some helpful numbers to think about when we think about the New Testament specifically. And I'm going to read a quote. It's a little bit longer than what's on the screen, but let me read it to you. Altogether, we have at least 20,000 handwritten manuscripts in Greek, Latin, Syriac, Coptic, and other ancient languages that help us determine the wording of the original. Almost 6,000 of these manuscripts are in Greek alone, so that's the original language. Uh, And we have more than 1 million quotations of the New Testament by church fathers. That's a lot, isn't it? So the guys who were around in the early church for the first few hundred years They quoted the the New Testament so many times, it's in excess of a million times. Someone once said, we could probably reproduce the New Testament just from the quotations from the early church fathers. I'm sure he was probably overstating it, but there's a lot of truth to what he says. Anyway, Wallace carries on. There is absolutely nothing in the Greco-Roman world that comes even remotely close to this wealth of data. The New Testament has more manuscripts that are within a century or two of the original than anything else from the Greco-Roman world. If we have to be skeptical about the original, uh, what the original New Testament said, then that skepticism on average should be multiplied 1,000 times for other Greco-Roman literature. Just Just to put things into perspective there. What does all this mean? Well, when someone says, how can we trust the, our Bible when its original meaning has been lost in transmission? Uh, we can say, you can say, because it hasn't been lost in transmission. And we can be confident about this because, firstly, this is not a game of telephone, all right? It has been written down, and it has been written down well. Because even though there are differences between the manuscripts, the copies, the vast, vast majority of them are tiny little differences. Differences like a spelling mistake, and they make no large difference, no significant difference to our faith. We can have confidence because of the thousands of manuscripts that we have. They allow us to compare them, and they give us more evidence than any other Greco-Roman document from this time. And because so many of these documents, these manuscripts, they're not hundreds and hundreds of years later, although we've got those ones as well, No, we have a good source that come from close to the time. This is why we can have one of the big reasons we can have confidence about the Bible. Plus, we believe in the Holy Spirit. I'll get to that one later. The second question we get to is around the decision of what is in the Bible and what wasn't. And that if it was decided late, and this is what people have heard, that it was decided hundreds of years later what would be in the Bible and what wouldn't, how can we trust it? How do we know that they got it right? Who were they to decide what was in there? And this is a slightly trickier question, I admit, because in one sense, what was in the New Testament, what we have in our New Testament Bibles, was decided about the 4th century. It was decided somewhere around there. And yet, it's also... No, it wasn't decided then. It wasn't. It was actually decided earlier. And this is where the trickiness and the messiness of history come in. 
Uh, let me try, try and explain this as best I can. Uh, I don't know what you think about, you know, how we, again, how we got the Bible, how we got the New Testament coming together, but it is really messy, and let me paint a picture of it for you. It, here's a little timeline. Hopefully it stays there. Uh, Jesus ascends, he goes off to heaven, and he leaves the apostles and all of those eyewitnesses after him. And we know that most of them, or many of them, were around for years and years after him, some of them up to about 65 years after him, so all the way getting close to 100 AD. And this is important because in this time, all of the New Testament was written. So before 100 AD, all of the New Testament was written. Now, all of these documents are individual documents. They are not the New Testament as we have it all stuck together nice and neatly like this. No, they're individual documents. And they're all being passed around in this time. And people are copying them. And we know this happened partially because it says so in the Bible itself. Hey, you read this letter, then send it to them, and they'll send the letter that I, I sent to them, and you read it there. And people would have copied it. And this is important. And as I said, it was these documents that were copied and passed around. And certainly there were other Christian documents around. There was even a few fakes around. You will hear of things like the Gospel of Thomas. If you really want to know what that is, come and talk to me. But it's not the same as the Gospels we have in our Bible. Most of these fakes were never seriously considered. No, people who were close to the sources, they knew which was authoritative and which was not. P52, it was written around 100 to 150 AD, as I said. And then in 180 AD, I'm skipping a few people, there was a man called Arrhenius. Arrhenius was a bishop in Lyon, France. I hope I'm saying that right. And he was special for a number of reasons. I want you to remember this guy. Uh, one of the reasons Arrhenius was uh, special is because he had seen and heard a bishop called Polycarp preach and teach. And Polycarp, history tells us, had heard John the Evangelist preach and teach. John the Evangelist, one of the apostles of Jesus, had preached and taught, and Polycarp had heard him, and Arrhenius had heard Polycarp. Essentially, Arrhenius was one skip removed from an apostle. This is really impressive. And he writes in 180 AD, or around about there, maybe 182, uh, he writes the series of books, and I think it's about five books, and it's got a big long name, which everyone has shortened to, Against Heresies. Against Heresies. Because guess what? Even in 180 AD, there were some wacky ideas floating around. And so he writes against them. And in, this, in these writings, uh, he references uh, all of our New Testament books except four of them, and they're four short books. He doesn't reference Philemon, 2 Peter, 3 John, and Jude. Three of those are one chapter long, which is probably why he doesn't reference them, actually. Uh, all of this to say, long before the Bible was ever in one book like this, like we have, long before the New Testament was ever in one book, here is one of the bishops of the church referring to them as authoritative. Now, he also referenced other things. I've referenced other people this morning as well. I, don't, I didn't give Daniel B. Wallace Jesus' authority, did I? I just quoted him. But Arrhenius was referencing these scriptures because he knew they were authoritative. He was listing them there. 
And this is really, really important. Now, it is around about this time uh, that codices or codexes were becoming a thing. Do you know what a codex is? You do. It's a book. Uh, It's one of these. But up until this stage, scrolls were what you used. And I've got a picture here of one. And that's what we read about in the New Testament when Paul says, hey, so-and-so, bring my scrolls, you know, bring me some scrolls. He's talking about the thing on the left. And what one, like just practically, when you think about a scroll, I don't know really what you think about, but practically you could only fit so much on them. Like the Gospel of Matthew would fill up just about the entirety of a scroll. Uh, and yet a codice, a book, you could write on both sides of the page. How novel is this? But it was very, very efficient. Also a scroll, again, just practically. Can you imagine if someone hands you the scroll of Matthew, and even if both sides of it were even, they were like, I want to read from the start of Matthew. You've got to go, scroll, scroll, scroll this way. And then someone said, I want to read from the end of the Gospel of Matthew. Scroll, scroll, scroll back the other way. And yet someone, books start coming along, and you're like, oh, I want to go to the start of Matthew. Flip. Uh-huh, I'm right here. Oh, I want to go to the end of Matthew. Flip. I'm right there. Can you see how amazing books would have seemed? Like, just incredible. And when you want to put multiple Gospels together, like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you just make the book longer. You just put more pages in. Hence, Christians loved codexes. They loved books. And they were big, big proponents of them. This is one of the oldest ones we have. This comes from around 330 to 350 AD. This has the whole uh, New Testament in it. It's actually in Latin, uh, and it is quite remarkable. What I'm saying is that when Jesus walked and talked on earth, codexes weren't, they were novel. They They were just not really around. You could not have a book with the New Testament altogether, basically. What I'm saying is the technology was only developing over these couple of two, three hundred years for people to be able to put Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, all of the New Testament together in one book. Hence, it wasn't really a question you could answer about, well, what's in the New Testament? Because in one sense, there wasn't a New Testament until you could have all of it together. And it was around this time that they were starting to answer that question. Actually, they had um, some bigger things that were even more of a priority. But this was not a question of us deciding what's in the New Testament. It was a question of them recognizing what has God given us. They did not give the New Testament authority. They recognized this is given to us by God. Uh, That Gospel of Thomas, some fellow came up with that. And they all knew it. They really did. And so that is how we got the New Testament. And it's way messier than anyone would like, but this is the way God was pleased to work. Now, is it, is it surprising that books like codexes, they sound way more mysterious when you call them a codex, don't they? But books just happen to come onto the scene at this exact same time as Christianity was expanding. I don't think it is. I think this is the way our God rolls. He lines this up and has the people in position. He has the means in position as well. 
So how can we trust the Bible when it was decided so late? Because this is the way God works. You know what? He uses people. He uses technology. And when the church, you know, had to, could actually put a New Testament together, could actually put a whole Bible together, yeah, they, they made a decision about what was in it. They did. And praise God for that. But they were only ever recognizing what God had given them. And there was a whole whole raft of stuff, lots and lots of books that they said, nah, it's good, but it's not from God. Lots and lots of things they said that about them. It's good, but not from God. And they got cut out. Plus, we can be confident we can trust in the Bible because we believe in the Holy Spirit. And I want to end here. Let me give you one verse. This is from Mark 12, verse 36. This is Jesus talking, and he's talking to some Pharisees, and he says, David, King David, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. The, Jesus, uh, the point Jesus is making to the Pharisees is that David, King David, his ancestor prophesied and pointed towards him, to Jesus as greater than him. And to do this, Jesus quotes from Psalm 110 verse 1. It's one of the most quoted Psalms in all of the New Testament. That was, that was the point of what Jesus was saying to the Pharisees. But look at what he's showing us. Like look at what he is showing us here in this one verse. Jesus is showing us this is the way God works. God used used David. Yes, he was a king. And before that, he was a warrior. And before that, he was a shepherd boy. And you know, as alongside all of those things, David was an adulterer and a murderer as well. Now, was God pleased to use David and to speak through him about Jesus? Was he? Yeah, he was. And this is the way God rolls. This is the way God works. And we should not miss this. History is messy. People are messy. You and I are messy. And God uses us. And isn't that great news? Isn't that an encouragement to us? God is still in the business of working. Still in the business of using all the mess of our lives. And when we go out into this world... And when we talk to our workmates, our neighbors, or whoever we are, or whoever they are, and we say, God is calling you today. That's a paraphrase from the New Testament. We can say that with all of his authority. And isn't that wonderful? Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, we give thanks that you have indeed given us your word. You are the God who speaks. You spoke and brought this world into being. You have spoken into it, though. Continue to speak into it. And indeed, give us your word in the Old Testament, in Jesus ultimately, and also in the New Testament as well. Holy Spirit, we glory. We, we are amazed that you would use messed up people. Uh, a lot of those disciples were fishermen. Some of them were tax collectors. But you would use them. You would use Luke, who was a physician, a doctor. You would use him 
You would use the advent of books being being discovered and becoming common and becoming popular. You would use that so that we could have your word. Lord, help us to look at all of the mess of this story and see that you were working in the midst of it. You were working through it. And for us to be encouraged by that today, that you are still at work, that we can hold on to your word with, with confidence and we can speak your word with that confidence as well. That it's not just us speaking, but that it is you using us today. We pray that you would use us, that you would be pleased to use us. You would be pleased to use us like those original disciples that you called Jesus. You would be pleased to use us like Bishop Arrhenius. You would be pleased to use us in our families, in our workplaces, in our schools, wherever we are. You would be pleased to use us to make yourself known. May we have a confidence that comes not from ourselves, not an arrogant confidence, but a confidence that comes from you, this God who is so wondrously at work in this world, continuing to speak and continuing to use us as well, a people that you have claimed for yourself. We love you, Jesus. We want to make you known. We pray, please use us. Amen. Amen.